Hello, Kevin. Awesome. You guys are nerds. Damn right. Oh, Kevin, you're so witty. I would stab someone in the face. Oh, that's gross. I'm cutting this, by the way. Bad Philosophy, episode 146, recorded on November 30th, 2013. Turnalism, part two, academic. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, Bad Philosophy, episode 146. Uh, it's part two of Turnalisms. Uh, Turnalism? Turnalism? Turnalism. 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 Because uh, last week, <laughs> three weeks ago, last time. Last week. The last recording. This totally is being recorded one week <laughs> after the previous episode. Yes. It's just <laughs> taken me a very long time to edit it. Um, we talked about the paternalism and maternalism and this ambiguous term we came up with called turnalism of uh, academ academia or of, of uh, universities and uh, academic institutions toward uh, students. Uh, it was a decent episode, I, I think we might say. Did your mom approve, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get her full opinion, but I liked that she thought the in loco parentis meant crazy parents, <laughs> yeah. um, which it kind of does. A little bit. A little bit. It's related to the conversation. Yeah. One, one could say that the, the idea of an institution yeah. being parental... Although she crazy. did share with me an interesting experience uh, recently. Mm -hmm. um, that happened. It happened a while ago, but she just shared it with me this past weekend mm -hmm. or during the, the Thanksgiving time when they were in here in town. Um, my mother is very aware of the, the sort of legal stuff and FERPA and things that go along mm -hmm. with, with having a, a, an adult child in college where if you don't sign the paperwork, they can't talk to the parent. Because right. that's the law. Yeah. Um, and something happened with Catherine's um, financial aid when she was in college. I don't know the specifics of it. My mother called because they had called our home phone number, mm -hmm. which Catherine wasn't at, obviously, because she was in Oklahoma. My mother called back. Um, and like they were like, Mrs. Saunders, we can't talk to you about this because of FERPA. And my mother was like, oh, yeah, that's right. She never signed the stuff. Don't worry about it. I'll call her. She'll get it taken care of. Mm -hmm. And she goes, and I heard this like audible sigh of relief uh. <laughs> from the person on the other end because they were clearly gearing themselves up for that, like, that we, FERPA like, talk. That FERPA talk, yeah. like, we can't tell you these things. I know you really care, but. Yeah. Um, but she was really cool about it. And was like, oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank cool. you for understanding. Which well, doesn't, I suspect, happen as often as it should nowadays. Probably. Well, no, it, and, it does and not. I can tell you, <laughs> and I will say that on behalf of every student affairs professional in the entire North American continent, thank you to your mom. And Where's if she could mother? go around and talk to the other parents, that'd be swell. All of them. All of them. Just All of the start other a parents. seminar series. Like, right. All of them. Look, she you don't to get Spanish to know. from Mexico, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, welcome back, Sean Brackett. Thank you. Hey. I'm happy to be back. I mean, we, we knew he was here. It's, per, it's journalism part two. If we well, did it without him, that would be yeah, sad. But, but, you know, for those members of the audience that may not be marathoning two bad philosophies in a row and just have, you know, continued right into this one. I guess that's fair. We should okay. introduce Sean. Um, Hi, welcome Sean. back to the show. Um, glad you were able to make it. And uh, we look forward to uh, diving a little bit deeper this time. Um, well, so that segues us into one of the articles that, that you shared, Sean, uh, after the last episode. Um, highly encourage you, our, our dear listeners, to to read those articles because we'll we'll sort of use those as a baseline and then uh, quote them and go off of them rather than uh, summarizing them. Uh, but it, I believe it was in that that article on uh, the NASPA study 
that they they mentioned um, most of the parent interaction that happens, uh, or at least a good chunk of it, is about financial aid. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It was. Let's see here. Oh, here here it was. Um, yeah, twenty four percent roughly for uh, regarding issues of financial aid and bill pay. Um, the parents were involved in that. Is yeah. That what you're saying yeah. Yeah. And and so you know, and there was really small percentages about like medical and safety issues, mental health reasons, campus safety, physical health. Um, but most of the time, it's just like, yeah, I mean, the parent is going to intervene because the parent is the one paying for the college mm-hmm. in a big, or at least a big chunk of it. Um, so we we sort of. It may be premature of us to just go, oh, well, parental involvement is holding students back. I mean, it, the, <laughs> the statistics they, they gave show that, that um, at least in some cases, that um, student development was actually helped by parental involvement. Um, so, Sean, I, I guess, uh, I don't know, did we, did we give, did we kind of shaft parents last time in, in, the, in the previous episode? <laughs> you know, I... That's tricky, and I don't want to say that we shafted them, but I think I think that we sometimes we forget the good that they can have, mm-hmm. and that's a part of why I sent that article to you about uh, the NASPA findings. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't work in my career field, NASPA is one of the two national organizations in the United States where. Um, folks who work at colleges and universities as staff members, um, that's the body that represents our interests. So if you know someone who works in housing, financial aid, counseling, student activities or involvement, orientation, all of those are in what we call student affairs. And so um, we deal with parents a lot and sometimes we forget the good that can come and also the historical differences. Um, And I say that because FERPA um, which is the federal privacy law, um, was passed in the 70s when a lot of our parents were just beginning their own college careers. And there is a certain irony in our parents' generation or the boomers fighting very staunchly for uh, there to be a, a disconnect between institutions and their parents mm-hmm. now coming across the same barriers and being frustrated. <laughs> um, however, those parents... Um, you know, before that law was enacted, privacy, the state of privacy was all over the map, depending on institution or state or region. And our parents' generation turned out fine, and I'm using air quotes, that they had, <laughs> that, that their parents, you know, sometimes called the greatest generation, mm-hmm. raised them in an era where control was widely exercised, not only by the parents controlling their child's social patterns, curfews, dress, things like that, but also the institutions, that in loco parentis idea. And yet, you know, they, um, our parents' generation rebelled against that, wanted more freedoms. And I think there's a part of that, the lesson of that, which is they grew up with varying levels of control, and so are we, and it's okay to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that constant, um, you know, redrawing of the line, right? Like, it mm-hmm. does, it's not like this is, this is a, a carving in stone of, of where these barriers happen. I, I think another quote from that article is, you know, in those, in those sort of borderline cases, go ahead and violate FERPA. I mean, no, no institution ever had to like pay out for violating FERPA. It's, it's one of those 
laws that really that, yeah well, I, I think that was the quote am i am i misquoting sean yeah. or was that sort of the that's cool <laughs> well i would i would put some healthy caution to that um, <laughs> that yeah. the office well there are so many layers of regulation and monitoring of mm -hmm. public and private higher education in this country Mm -hmm. One of them is the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. And so that office tends to send out things called Dear Colleague Letters, which is okay. a very, very telling name, um, that those are essentially uh, mandates or instructions that are just given a pretty title. Yeah. Um, and they're essentially the this, that, and the other thing are happening and it needs to stop or um, and those are often issued nationwide hmm. um, and so there's been some issues I think at the University of Montana I want to say about Title IX cases and those hmm. relate to discrimination and harassment based on gender uh. um, and the handling of sexual assault cases and things like that um, and the OCR um, sent out a dear colleague letter that said institutions you need to be better about responding to cases like this you need to act in the best interest of students and um, there were some repercussions so the Department of Education may not find I'm not aware of a case where they find an institution recently mm -hmm. but there are repercussions and so we do have to be exceedingly careful but just like with many laws, there's always, there, well, not always, um, there's usually <laughs> um, a clause for health and safety. Yeah. So if we have a parent who calls us and is concerned about a missing student or a note, we will, um, we're not violating FERPA, we're following the clause that says if there's an imminent risk to health or safety, you can acknowledge the student is enrolled, you can contact, you know, you can do all these things. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do have to be pretty careful. Well, the, um, the, the specific quote is coming from uh, Richard Mullendor uh, from the University of Georgia. He's a um, student affairs uh, professor there. And uh, it's like he's talking about how institutions tend to, to hide behind FERPA to sort of protect themselves in, in these borderline cases. Um, like they, the, the, the sort of ambiguity about, well, okay, what's actually permissible to, to share? Um, and, but apparently FERPA, let's see, FERPA doesn't prohibit contact with the parents of students who are under 21, so it's kind of up to the institution. And this is where he says, like, if you feel the need to violate FERPA, my recommendation is to violate FERPA. No one's ever lost a dollar for doing so. Hmm. So it's kind of, you know, err on the side of what's best for the student and the parent in this situation and kind of... Which seems like a good idea. Yeah, it's sort of a use good judgment approach. But then again, like providing those sort of gray areas, those loopholes, those, you know, rooms for interpretation, <laughs> it, it, it breeds, potentially breeds inconsistency in the application of policy, which is why policy exists, right? It's so that we don't, <laughs> we're, not, we're not discriminating in, in one case versus another, so that wherever a student goes in the United States, you can expect similar situations for, for the students and parents. So, <laughs> except well, but, except, except <laughs> we as educational institutions value autonomy. Right. I mean, so, it too, sometimes to a ridiculous level, hmm. that... I'm in California, 
and we have a highly regulated post-secondary education environment. Okay. You know, systematic. Um, there are policies and rules for everything. I mean, we have everything. rules for things that would make your the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It so makes jazz, sense. Can, can you provide some examples? Oh, I'm, I'm really um, curious, actually. <laughs> so um, if a student, um, how do I phrase this? If there are activities, whether it's a, a social event, an educational event, that take place on campus for residential students, so those mm. who live in the residence halls, um, they can attend no problem. But if that event takes place off campus and you have a resident student leave campus, then you have to have a liability waiver huh. prepared by the Office of Risk Management <laughs> and then given to each student. Now, risk management is empowered to make certain exceptions to that. So there are areas of the city which are very close to the campus that the Office of Risk Management will often say, realistically, we're not endangering the university by having an event. So you uh -huh. don't need a waiver. But nine times out of ten, you okay, you're stepping off campus, liability waiver. I need like to know, if they I wanted to, to go to a bowling alley on the other side of town, like you got to have a liability. You got to do a liability. liability waiver because then you're exposing the institution liability during transportation. Oh. Um, the fact that alcohol can be served at a bowling alley, um, <laughs> that bowling balls are very heavy and could hurt someone's toes. They are. They are heavy. You know, like I agree oh with that. And my. so, in that, and that, really, the bureaucracy of that is very representative of how California operates. Okay. But even to bring this back to parents, FERPA does not define um, a, a clear example. Um, institutions are allowed to distribute, disseminate, discuss directory information about a student. Mm -hmm. That's what FERPA says. And guess where it defines what directory information means? Nowhere! Correct. <laughs> so, institutions Perfect. take this to mean different things. Oh, no. Certain institutions will say the fact that they are enrolled, that's directory. Uh -huh. Some will say, and usually the bigger issues because I work in housing are, some institutions say, I can tell you their room number and their phone number, which is permissible under FERPA because there are certain um, explicit do not share so I cannot share a student's identification number. Okay. I can't share their grades. I can't share their bill, their schedule of classes. But what is permissible is address, like local address. Hmm. Um, because they live accessible. on campus. Because it's accessible, a phone number. Right. But okay. certain institutions, including the one I work for now, we will not even acknowledge that a student lives on campus hmm. for the most part. Now, With exceptions. <laughs> there are exceptions to that based on, and that discretion is given to staff members like me. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, you know, we have to be able to assess imminent danger and also the, this parent has their own issues that they're working through. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, that, you know, the Chickering article about the seven vectors of development, I think I alluded to this, you know, last week. Uh -huh. Whenever we lasted this episode, <laughs> yes. yes, it was last week, Sean. It was, I'm sorry, I forgot. Correct. It's been a long seven days. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> that students are going through a tremendous transition. Mm -hmm. So are parents. We are asking them to make a 180 degree shift 
that they used to be the guardians, the stewards of their child's education mm-hmm. and their life. And now we are throwing up a huge iron curtain, maybe an ivory curtain, <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. And, <laughs> and saying, no, they are now legal adults. Mm-hmm. They are now, they have educational records protected by this law, uh-huh. you know, turn around. It, it, it's a huge <laughs> shift. And so oftentimes I'll get parents who are just, they don't know how to help their son or daughter. Hmm. And so my response is usually, I don't even, you know, they'll ask me for advice. And I usually couch it in, well, if I were, if I had a student like yours, if I were to have be in a yeah. similar situation, which is, I mean, that's a good, that's a good start. You know, that, that's that sort of at Apple, we were, we were taught the acknowledge, align and assure, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I acknowledge that you're, um, worried about your student and you want what's best for them and and uh, I can assure you that that I'm I you know want to, to see them succeed and want what's best for them as well and and that you know we're going to take every measure blah 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 you know kind of that sort of it you find yourself doing that right Sean oh yeah it's yeah. it is there is a very good reason why our field grew out of counseling and therapy yeah <laughs> there's a very good reason that's for where it. you live well so you um you touched on the, the seven vectors, and uh, you know, since since um, last week, I have uh, I have read the article that you shared, and uh, it's you're you're right. He he does couch the um, the difference or the development from uh, autonomy to interdependence mm-hmm. as um, as a, a key part of of the identity formation, but uh, or of of um, I don't know development, but identity formation. Uh, Let's just kind of summarize these here, which I said I wasn't going to do. Damn it. <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway for my own edification. Um, developing confidence, one. Uh, managing emotions. And Stephen, it's actually developing competence. Did I say confidence? You did. Or at least wow. that's what I heard. De- no, developing competence. Developing competence. Managing emotions. Moving through autonomy toward interdependence, which we talked a little bit on the last yeah. show. Developing mature interpersonal relationships, establishing identity, developing purpose, and developing integrity. And all these were very interesting. I mean, he, he so you're saying Chickering kind of started this from a, a perspective of student development, but in a way it's, it's kind of like any person developing through that that age range, right? Like out of out of adolescence into adulthood, this can sort of be that be considered that uh, that transitional. All the challenges of that transition, right? I would agree. And to be to be frank, Chickering's research is foundational to student affairs. Hmm. We it is in every student affairs graduate program. It's one of the first things that you learn. But a lot of our research on, you know, Chickering's work, for example, is based on very small sample populations. Mm. It's based on white undergraduates at Harvard, <laughs> males often. Oh. You know, like so. There, there has been a reaction toward using just Chickering's work in isolation sure. because it has been argued by some that Chickering's work is very ethnocentric, heterosexist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Uh-huh. And it excludes people who don't go into college right after high school. 
it totally ignores ethnic minorities, it, you know, et cetera. Um, and so while I, I think there is some validity to that criticism, I do think that a lot of this work is very well done and <laughs> you know, Chickering gets the credit because he was the first. He's the one who wrote it down. Yeah, which is I mean, that's how I call goes. that the Aristotle problem. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, well, because I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, just because in the world of theater, like Aristotle is a foundational text. Mm-hmm. Um, his his the work, the Poetics, but all he was doing, like Aristotle, didn't invent anything in terms of theater. What he did mm-hmm. was he looked at those things that were happening. And wrote them down, mm-hmm. um, which which you could do when you were Aristotle's age, which is to say in the the past. And that's important that he wrote them down. Yeah. But like they're called the Aristotelian elements, not because he came up with them, because he wrote them down. And it's actually arguable that he didn't write them; his students wrote them, but we don't know who they were. Right. Um, which I mean, yeah. <laughs> so so in terms of like assigning responsibility for or credit for uh-huh. coming up with the ideas. I mean, I, I think that's that's very difficult to do in, in almost any oh, sure. theoretical framework that you can you can name. Like the I, I am a big proponent and, and adherent to the idea that everything is a remix. Um, ideas just sort of float around and have sex with each other in, in idea space <laughs> and you know eventually one person is going to sort of be the host to where those ideas you know, give birth to something, and then uh-huh. they'll be the one to write it down. But like all the elements that were leading up to that were just sort of floating around them, living in the minds of others, living in other texts, and yeah, I mean, at some point, someone is going to write a thing down, and to an extent that yeah, you can credit that person for coming up with the idea. At mm-hmm. the very least, they they found it important enough to write down in one place and sort of draw a circle around, and that but that activity is something different than. The generation of the idea itself, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. if if I may use that, however, to digress into a topic that I've also been doing some research to. Sure, please um, do. And, and by doing some research, I mean listening to some other podcasts about. <laughs> How dare um, you! <laughs> and and well, because we see this idea when it comes to things like patents. I don't yeah. know if you guys are aware, but there's currently a patent war going on with podcasts. Uh, what is there not been? Well, well, no, that's just the thing. But um, like uh, Mark Maron is kind of the figurehead of it right now because he got sued first. Mm-hmm. Um, but the EFF is dealing with it a lot as well. But the fact that we are doing this thing right now mm-hmm. is possibly in violation of a patent. Right. There was a guy who in the 80s invented magazines on audio cassette where the articles were determined by the user and mailed to you. Yes. So you'd pick sort of topics and they'd send you things on a cassette and recorded you'd play it. by, you know, professional voice actors yeah. or whatever. It was basically people reading news articles to that you. would yes. that were just sent to you. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, which is <coughs> which <You> is <laughs> I'm gonna do it again now. Oh here it comes. No, it's not a bright enough light around here. Never mind. Um, oh here wait, 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 wait. It's, it's too late. It's gone. Damn it. It's gone. <laughs> I shined Thank my you. iPhone light I appreciate in Kevin's it. eyes. I appreciate it. <laughs> it didn't um, work. <laughs> but so, so that, that was patented. Uh-huh. Um, and now the owner of that patent is suing lots of people who make podcasts. Right. Because his patent was over, like, yeah, audio but distributed to people. In, on a regular basis. Like, or whatever. Which, but the uh, thing is... Yeah. 
he didn't, he may have come up with that idea. Mm-hmm. And he may have been the first one to come up with that idea. He may not have been. He probably wasn't. Right. There's actually some evidence of prior art, which is what which, they're using in court. Yeah. But when you take that, that idea you had of, well, you got to give somebody the credit to its logical extreme, this is what you end up with. He never made any podcasting software. He never popularized podcasts. He's not responsible for even making a single podcast as we know it today in our life. And yet he's the one who is legally credited with the creation of podcasting. Which I, I do have a problem time. with that. I, I am sorry that, that I gave the impression that, like, <laughs> yeah, you have to give credit to someone. But I think uh, you, you give credit to them in a way other than what we commonly... Like that idea of he invented podcasting, I would not go so far as to say I that. wouldn't either. I would say he invented a kind of podcasting or like invented something that bore a similarity to it. But, there, but that maybe nobody invented podcasting. Like and, and kind of coming yeah. up with being okay with that idea that yeah. maybe Aris, maybe nobody came up with these ideas of theater, which I'm okay with in some in some sort of ultimate sense. Yeah. Like you know maybe Kant didn't come up with the you know categorical imperative, right? Like he just he is. just gave it a name, yeah, or gave a name to something that bore similarity to other ideas that he mm-hmm. kind of assembled from other people. Like in in any case, it's just the idea of naming something is is very important to us um, oh, because individuals certainly. are named and things are named and and all that fun aristotelian fact mm-hmm. um, he in in aristotle's the poetics he describes there's a section on diction um, mm-hmm. which is not which has also been translated as language which is to say the words we use mm-hmm. in a play it's an it's an element of theater right they talk <laughs> yeah um, this is what i'm talking about when i say there's like real simple things like the, the elements of theater are plot character thought or idea mm-hmm. diction music and spectacle <laughs> so there is things that happen there's people who do them there is a message mm-hmm. um, they say stuff we hear stuff we see stuff mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Now, that is a broad interpretation of Aristotle. Mm-hmm. He means more specific things when he talks about them. Oh, definitely. Because um, he was talking about the, the instances that he was familiar with. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, like, you can't, you can't point to a play where that isn't the case. Okay. Show me a play where those six things don't exist, and I will give you $100. Oh, I'm sure there are plays without diction. You just go to Germany. The lack of diction sure is like diction. Oh, Really? Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the fact they don't say things it, creates an impression. Well, but that, Does that would, I would put that under. Count? I would argue it could. Oh, definitely. Um, anyway, the, the fun thing, to, just, you were saying yeah. the act of naming things matters. Yeah, yeah. When he's talking about language and the different parts of language, he does not use the term noun, or it's not translated as noun. It's actually translated as name in most common translations. Mm-hmm. That, so we have these names for things. Yeah. It's just a, just a fun Aristotelian fact for you. Yeah, because, I mean, that's, it's what we do. You it know? is. We're, it's we're about human the beings, right? we we gotta, we got to be able to... to you know, identify things in the world and come back to them and use a common framework for yeah. doing so. And, and naming does that. And so, you know, that, but that's the thing is I think we've over, oversubscribed, over, oversubscribed, overascribed a significance to names of ideas and, and the originators of those oh, names we, of ideas. We give them and, a lot and, of credit. And conflated the naming of the idea with the 
invention or creation of the idea itself. Yeah. Um, it and I think that it's like they need to recognize that they can't be alone and they need to be more <laughs> interdependent. Wow. <laughs> Bringing us back to chickering, everybody. Well done. Sean well done. Bracket. <laughs> yep. Kevin's giving you the slow clap there. Um, yeah. Hashtag so, so... my dreams have come true. <laughs> uh, so yeah, coming back to, to Chickering, I, I want to go in a, a maybe tangential direction from Chickering. It, does he have anything to do with uh, internal family systems? Um, explain. Because he, there, there was a point in the article, and and I don't, I can't, I can't. I won't be able to point exactly to it without bringing it up here, but internal family systems is, is essentially the idea that, that each person's mind is not as singular as we would like it to be, that essentially each person is made up of parts that uh, are almost like, like basically everybody has multiple personality disorder, but it's not a disorder, it's just the way people are. Like you, you have different, sometimes competing, sometimes uh, coordinating uh, components within your your mind um, that that each uh, yeah that that, e that each have their own like uh, wants and desires and memories and and kind of personalities and that there are these sort of meta parts that are called managers I believe in, in internal family systems that um, mm. that sort of integrate the other uh, parts and kind of get them get them on the same page listen to them yeah, the, the same way that like a manager in a business would listen to the various com various stakeholders and kind of come up with a plan of action and not let any one of them drive the entire group in a certain way that's going to harm certain members of them and um, just like because I, I Chickering mentioned in one uh, yeah because he, he, he talks about parts, but it's really, I mean, the idea of talking about parts of the self is not new in any particular way, maybe, and it's not unique to internal family systems, but that's just, like, the way that internal family systems is set up. It's, um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, his, if other aspects of his research went in that direction, mm -hmm. given the history of student affairs and drawing significantly from psychology, sociology, Mm. You know, that's very common. So it wouldn't surprise me in the least. I am not aware of any specific works or theories posited by him about that. Okay. So, but it, it, again, just like he might be drawing from some of that terminology, uh, a really brief, um, some points on the, the therapeutic method of, of IFS. Uh, just to kind of keep going on this thread, uh, parts in extreme roles carry, quote, burdens, which are painful emotions or negative beliefs that they have taken on as a result of harmful experiences in the past, often in childhood. These burdens are not intrinsic to the part and therefore can be released or unburdened through IFS therapy. Uh, this allows the part to assume its natural healthy role. Um, the client's capitalized self is the agent of psychological healing. The therapist helps the client to access and remain in self and provides guidance in the therapy process. Because uh, part of this is I think that, that certain parts can sometimes completely take over the, you know, what we might perceive as the person who's there with us at that moment. So that like the part has access to all systems and is, and is like suppressing the other parts in that mm -hmm. moment. Um, 
and that can be detrimental because obviously the other parts are sort of held in this like in this they're held hostage <laughs> you know in sort of lock-in type situation um, it, it's just fascinating stuff and it's like kind of kind of recognizing that um, there there is this deeper level of complication within a person and I think one of the things Trickering talked about is that uh, integrity and purpose yeah, and, and identity three of his vectors are really related to kind of bringing all of the different um, pulls inside of a person into alignment and kind of get, getting you to you know make sure everybody's rowing in the same direction right hmm. um, it's worth noting mm-hmm. that chickering the idea of his theory is not that you would start in the first vector complete it or master it and then move mm-hmm. on oh yeah the, but all of these things happen in parallel yes and ah. that you know some some individuals might you know feel um you know very stable emotionally they have an understanding of their triggers and how to cope with stress but they may really struggle in terms of purpose hmm. for most of their lives. Um, so Chickering's is not necessarily age-bound like a lot of his peers hmm. um, with other, other student development theories tend to focus on, you know, children aged 0 to 6 tend to do this. By the time uh, of 15, they do this. Good old Piaget. Not like that. What, Piaget. I still remember his uh, uh, stages. Oh, um, it's uh, birth to two, two to seven, seven to eleven, and eleven to fourteen. How do you spell his name? P i g e t p i a g e t p i j. I learned them in adolescence class. I don't remember what the different stages are anymore, but I still remember the name or the hmm. ages. Birth to two, two to seven, seven to eleven, and I think eleven to fourteen or eleven to fifteen. Well, he looks like a. He looks like an academic. Yeah, you want to talk about small sample sizes? He came up with his ages of development simply by watching his own kids. <laughs> um, and generalized to no, all of he had more than He had more than a couple. He had a large number of children. <laughs> but it was like, but, literally, your sample size is your progeny. Uh, that, oh. um, so he, he lived way before the ideas of sample bias. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, this, this is like real early work oh, in this world. Way. Hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, there it is. Stages of development. He has a Swiss developmental psychologist and philosopher known for his epistemological studies with children. Yeah. Um. Mostly his own. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. So, so uh, I guess we we've kind of we've kind of pittered out here. Um, Sean, did <laughs> sorry. We, once we start start talking about re- obscure Frenchmen and their and their children. Um, <laughs> He's Swiss. I'm sorry. He has a, Once we how do you start, laugh sarcastically in Swiss? You would just say... What does it sound like to laugh with chocolate in your mouth? <laughs> okay. Have either of you two been to Switzerland? No. Nope. Okay. Uh, no. I might, I might have traveled through it on my way to Prague. Can you like okay. laugh I while you I was in the yodel? airport. Okay. Can, well, I've actually you... been to Switzerland. Okay. Yes, they eat a lot of chocolate, but it's... <laughs> they not... yodel too, right? That's a thing that Swiss people do. Yeah, and they, and they walk around with their... Um, with their lederhosen? Yes, that they stole from the Germans. And they, just, they talk about being neutral all the time. <laughs> I cannot decide between these two things. I will stay in the middle. Stereotypes. 
<laughs> so what do the Swiss actually sound like, Sean? Um, well, Swiss German is not like regular German, and it's much... It's um, what... Uh, okay, if anyone who is Swiss is listening to me, I apologize. <laughs> but... Um, hey, we used to be big in Scandinavia. We did, but that's not Switzerland. No, that's, that's not. It's a really um, different place. I would say Swiss German is to standard German uh-huh. as Quebecois French is to standard French. Okay, um, Frenchy French. They are mutually intelligible, but there is a pretty strong accent. Hmm. Um, the diction is different. Um, you know. And, Verbs are used differently. I mean, and it's um, it was interesting, but mm-hmm. I was also in the Italian-speaking part of Switzerland. So, <laughs> oh. so, I, so I, the question still stands: How would a Swiss person stereotypically laugh? I'm I don't think a... Swiss people laugh. Oh, really? That's like I think a... that's the stereotype. Yeah, that okay. Serious. <laughs> okay. We're, yeah, we're now I mean, listening to some Swiss, uh, a Swiss YouTube video. Okay, you just Google Swiss video. I did. Let's see. It, it is it is noticeably different from regular German. It ha- it has like a like a, a I don't lilt? even know how to describe it. It sounds like happier. It sounds happier <laughs> than like regular German. <laughs> Also, they're they're like using a fire hose to coat a, a lake, and talking about like a, a dog or something. You clearly have no idea what's going on. <laughs> it, it just it, yeah, it just it sounds like much calmer than regular German. <laughs> so maybe maybe the laugh would be like like uh, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, sure. That's what it is. Why not? We'll just we'll just make it that, and that'll be the stereotype from now on. I declare it. I've named it. Okay. Swiss laugh. Okay, when I get an answer, I'll let you know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> She'll probably uh, kill me for even going down that road. <laughs> I, I understand that. Oh, uh, I found the, uh, the uh, what was his name? Paget. Uh, Piaget. Piaget. All right, Texas. Paget. <laughs> I found Paget stages. Uh, yeah, birth to six, six to four, four to six, eight to twelve. Wait a second. What these? Oh, months. those are... Oh, months? A month? These are, okay. these are more further broken 18, down. 18 to f- 24. I think uh, those are not the same Piaget's. Yeah, those are not as ones I know. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm familiar with what... Um, that's all in the sensory motor stage. Um, okay. Well, whatever. Maybe I didn't find them. Psych. Yeah. Psych, psych. I'm, I'm positive I still do those numbers. So... Okay. Wikipedia's wrong. Let's fix it. So, so Sean... Got a question. Okay. Shoot. If if you could rewrite policy and and the execution thereof in one way, like you you have you have one area of policy or one bill or one decree, like FERPA like that you can you can put out there into the into the United States world of academia. What what do you say and why? Regarding parents? Um, regarding any of any of the stuff we've discussed over these these last two episodes, the way students are treated by the universities, yeah. or how student affairs is is conducted, um, what's your magic bullet? What's your, yeah? Do you, <laughs> fix everything. Fix in everything. Twenty words or less. <laughs> oh my <laughs> goodness! 
I feel like I'm back in comprehensive exams. Oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have asked that. That was Which? a horrible idea. That was a horrible question. I, I rescinded that. I rescinded that question. Yeah. Um, Sorry for giving you comp flashbacks because yeah. that's oh. terrible. To be full disclosure, I never took comps. Oh. What? <laughs> I wrote a thesis. It was an either-or thing. Okay. Oh, well, of course you would write a thesis. But you're going to a PhD program, right? Yes. Okay, you'll have to do comps then. Oh, no. And a thesis. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, trust me. Okay. I read. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I, I survived Amy's point. comps, which... Well, okay, so let, let's, let's break it down a little bit. So, like, there's one thing, maybe two things, that annoy you more than anything else in, <laughs> in, in, your, in your work right now, in, in what you encounter. Um, I think, what, oh, well, I think I'm ready. Okay. Uh, you, really? Whoa. Thing, okay. All right. Go for it. <laughs> the biggest thing I see as a structural issue within higher education mm. is that we still assume that all of our students come directly from high school, that they are academically prepared to be at college, that they come from, quote, nuclear families, that they are from middle class, upper middle class incomes. Like, we still assume all of these things about our students. Oh, in other and, words, that, that they're uh, typical white people. Uh, yes. Okay. That we don't, um, there are, there have been structural attempts, I mean, especially in California. I mean, there's a sea of things that we do to address piecemeal different issues. Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's been truly collaborative, systemic um, policy changes or structure that would recognize that our student body and the corresponding parents and families that support those students are significantly different than they were 50 years ago when the higher education system exploded in terms of growth. Hmm. And I don't have a silver bullet. I don't think there is a <laughs> silver bullet. But I think we need to get on the ball about some of those things. I mean, we're just now catching up to the reality that, oh, maybe kids who are in the foster system want to go to college. <laughs> what? Whoa. Seriously. Slow that, down there. That it's still most, not, okay, I, I don't have any reason to say most. But lots of. Yeah. Lots of institutions I'm familiar with cannot even identify their students who came from the foster system. <laughs> That's significant to me because many schools have a first year live on campus requirement. Sure. And most often, residence halls close over Thanksgiving break, for example. Yep. Oh, Where do yeah. those students go? <laughs> because it gets they're awfully lonely impassable. on campus during Thanksgiving break if you stay. <laughs> yeah. And you can't legally stay in the dorms. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, many, many universities have options like, you know, university-owned apartments or mm. something along those lines, you mm. know, just like Texas Tech did. Um, but it's very much an afterthought. And a part of the structural systemic issue is our increasing diversity. And mm. I think on one level, that's a, that's a good thing. It's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have because I think cultural understanding and bridging gaps globally comes from individuals meeting others from different backgrounds, different privileges, you know, et cetera. However, be, uh... with that is 
with that comes the difficulties in managing so many different people with so many different needs. Mm. It's a hammer and nail problem. Hmm. In the sense that like institutions have sort of, they've developed a really good hammer. <laughs> and so now that, that, now pretty much every student, for a long time, every student that has come into the system looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. um, whereas some of them are oranges and flowers, and and you should not squish <laughs> oranges or flowers with a your hammer, hammer on an orange. <laughs> you'll you'll just get juice everywhere. I don't I don't really. That's where the analogy starts to break down for me. <laughs> less effective we're not at that physically point. Physically harming our students. Hopefully, we're not hitting our students uh, with hammers. True, but maybe psychological hammers in some cases. Um, oh yeah. yeah, I mean, if you are an African American student at. I don't know, San Jose State University, mm -hmm. you might be feeling a little bit unsupported and a little bit threatened these days. Hmm. So maybe it's, uh, you know, what's interesting is this problem is not unlike a problem that is, pro problems that are occurring in many realms now where there is a, sort of a, a service relationship, um, Apple being one example perhaps, uh, but I'm seeing it also in just, just retail in general, um, or any, anywhere that there are sort of goods or services provided to people that are a, of a very diverse and, and you know, e becoming even more complex or diverse group. Mm -hmm. that the one-size-fits-all approach isn't working anymore. I mean, we, we got through the, you know, the Industrial Revolution was all about, you know, we need to make this one thing a million times because everybody's the same. And that, that was sort of a privilege that we had was, well, we, you know, yeah, we're just going to make everybody the same. Um, but now that we are sort of recognizing, oh, my God, human beings really are incredibly multifaceted and there are all these different possibilities that, you know, we were marginalizing it becomes a problem for any any institution that has sort of its growth is dependent on its ability to to kind of industrialize its processes to to efficiently copy and apply those copies of those methods and, and those systems to a wide range of people no matter what like to, to sort of ignore all of the differentiating factors and just focus on a couple these are all people, or these are all students between the ages of 17 and 25 that are coming here for education, and that's all that matters. Um, but the more, the more vectors you introduce, the more facets, the more details, obviously, yeah, the more you do have to, to personalize the process, and that is not a scalable solution right now. Um, I, I think, you know, in, in the other realms, uh, like, say, retail, the way they're approaching it is big data. So computers are really good at processing a lot of differences between things and doing personalization way faster than a human can. And so when it gets to like, you know, Google search result, Google is doing a really good job of personalizing. Okay, we're not going to give you, even if you put the same word into Google, it matters where you are in the world, when you're searching, all of these yeah. other factors contribute that you may not even take into account. So we've developed algorithms that can sort of compensate for this scale problem. Uh, in retail, there's a, um, there's a company called Stitch Fix that's uh, doing incredibly well. They just got you know, over a dozen million dollars in um, Series B funding, I think, from uh, um, a very prominent venture capital firm in Silicon Valley because they have tapped into women's fashion in a, and, and uh, women's retail in a way that no company has really been able to do. They, they are personalizing kind of 
what they call a fix, a package of clothes and cosmetic products that is personalized, tailored to individual women that are their customers in a way that only an algorithmic process can do, and it's getting it right. Like the, they're using feedback and uh, a, a, a diverse product portfolio to, to kind of get, get to know these women through systems in a way that a, that a stylist might be able to do and kind of starting to approximate that personalizability. Now, <laughs> you know, when that's something you can, you can, you can do I that with search results and with retail, but when it comes to like, you know, developing a student, you know, I don't know <laughs> if we're, how far we are from being able to get algorithms to do that well, and right? I, I think you're right that, you know, when you talk about big data, one, an example that comes to mind is that on a basic level, institutions lack certain pieces of information yeah. because sometimes the law prevents them from doing that. Hmm. So, for example, some, well, I would say many universities do not actually know how many LGBT people are on campus. Because <laughs> they're not Beca allowed to. Because they're not allowed to ask. Uh... Now, the University of Iowa, I believe, recently got authorization to add that to their application process. And that would help a diversity office or an LGBTQ center figure out, okay, who's our target population? How are we meeting people? Mm -hmm. uh, the needs of people. Yeah. Academic advising, if you, we were able to get, I would say, someone with the design ethos of Apple, in other words, making things simple in higher ed, because we can't do simple, um, you could really <laughs> improve academic advising. Hmm. You know, the, but the biggest issue, and you hit on this, is that on some level we need consistent outcomes. We need to recognize that our students are individual and meet them where they are and recognize that they each have value and that they matter and their cultural background and their identities and beliefs are important. But we need everyone to be literate. Yeah. You know, yeah. there are certain industrial, quote-unquote, outcomes that we just need. We need you to be able to read. We need you to be able to do basic math. We need you to be able to discuss an issue without resorting to violence. There are certain things that we need to do and I think we can only accomplish through person-to-person -person interaction. Hmm. I don't think a computer will ever be able to fix the issue. At the very least, well, and, and what it always turns into is at some point there is going to be a human involved in any of these processes, whether it's Google or Stitch Fix or an academic institution, there's, there's at some point the person is going to be tweaking the algorithms or, you know, maybe sometimes even being the algorithm. I think what you're finding is in academia, you have to be the database and the algorithm and the program all, all together and you know, there are only so many students that you can take care of with that. Whereas in the case of something like Google, you don't have, they, they don't have to be the database. They don't have to be the algorithm. They have to be sort of a meta algorithm that, that's, you know, directing these resources. And, you know, that, that's where you're, you're able to get a little bit better solution. But sometimes mm -hmm. you can't, you can't generalize there. I, I liked your point about, um, about the outcomes. I mean, I think that that works in concert with, um, with big data. It's, it's, the data is the tool that gets you to the outcomes. 
and the algorithms are the tool that gets you the outcomes. But you're right, the outcomes don't change. I mean, it, it's just a question of whether you use technology to get you there or whether you use technology in concert with human beings and the kind of the, bl the blend, the mix, the balance between mm -hmm. those systems um, in order to, to judge the effectiveness. And, you know, I, I think those meta, those meta goals remain. And, I, and uh, the, the troubling thing is, and I'm, I'm encountering this in, in more spheres than I thought I would, that there is still a reluctance to trust technology when it comes to uh, human interaction and, and human tru truly th things that we associate with like human well-being. Um, but I think that we will get there because humans are the ones designing this technology and we're going to be able to say like, yeah, this is doing a good job or not. We're obviously not going to develop systems that, well, maybe not obviously, <laughs> that, that uh, steer us astray. Um, but we just, we have to remain vigilant. Um, but I think there's a huge opportunity in education to, to do that kind of thing, like to, to open it up. I mean, I would, I would love to see like a, an entrance survey, a truly like comprehensive entrance survey for all students that just sort of assesses, okay, here's where I'm starting. And then that goes into a database and it allows you or a system to kind of say, okay, here's where our students are starting. You know, we mm -hmm. know a lot about them, and because we know that, we can better help them go from where they're starting to where they want to be, to where we would like them to be, um, the, in the best way possible. Uh, mm -hmm. But it all it all starts with everybody kind of being on the same page, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I, I shouldn't have the last word. Is there anything you want to? <laughs> is there anything you want to wrap up with, Sean? You know, I think it's that the important part of education is not necessarily the content matter or the subject that you're learning in the classroom. I think the important part of education is the realization of human potential. Hmm. And that will take humans working together and realizing that at some point we have to figure things out on our own. And that's and that's difficult for parents to let go. It's difficult for students to take up that challenge on their own. It's difficult for staff and faculty to see students make mistakes and not be able to prevent those. But it's through those mistakes that we learn and that human potential is realized. Hmm. Word. Hmm. Well, thank you, Sean, for, for coming on for two consecutive episodes and, and sharing your, um, your thoughts and your expertise on all this. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, some more articles maybe that, that you can share for, for this one? Is there, is there further reading that we can give to our listeners? Sure, I can give you the entire graduate program. <laughs> Ta-da! Oh, Ta-da! Here, actually, oh. I'm just going to create an online university. Okay. And I'm going to process some FAFSA forms, and then um, I'll get your student loans, and then you can have a diploma from me. Yay! Cool. The, what are you going to call your university? Um, BAU. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Sean Brackett is online at, uh, is it at Sean Brackett on Twitter? Uh-huh. All right. Don't I, forget the second T. Don't forget, yeah, it's uh, B-R-A-C-K-E-T-T. And because my first name is S-H-A-W-N. Which is the way of spelling Sean that makes sense. Like In S -E English. S-E-A-N doesn't work for me. It's seen. It's no, seen. S-E-A-N in the Gaelic, when you have two slender Am vowels I speaking next to each Gaelic? other. <laughs> 
No, but we have a. Sorry, I'm gonna stop too, because two slender bowels. Deal. I'm gonna let it go. My name is Sean. S-H-A-W-N. My last name is Bracket. B-R-A-C-K-E-T-T. -T. I'm on Twitter and Tumblr. Yes. I just gotta say, I love that you have an opinion on that, Sean. It's amazing. <laughs> Um, well, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at S-Torrence, S-T-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. Um, I occasionally blog at steventee.me, uh, although not as frequently as I would like to, but that may change in the near future, maybe, possibly, probably not. Um, and then Kevin is online at Kevson, K-E-V-S-A-U-N-D. Um, you can, of course, find us at Bad Philosophy, um, at Bad Philosophy badphilosophy.com and at facebook.com slash badphilosophy. We'd love to hear more from you. I know there are some of y'all out there who listen to the show on a regular basis and seriously, take five minutes out of your day and say thank you because we love you and we will keep doing this because we love you. Um, and then in the meantime, uh, yeah, uh, I don't have a good closer for this one. We'll see Bye you everybody. next time. <laughs> Bye uh, on Bad Philosophy. <laughs> also, I realized that I sent you an email that was entitled Kinks instead of Links. <laughs> yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> Judgment-free zone. It would have been, uh, I mean... It would have been more interesting if it was a list of links to your kinks. Right. Or suggested kinks. Like, or, try or these just, out. And not even a list, but just like, or not even a link, but an actual list. Or just a list. Yeah, it's like, here's, here's a list of kinks. Yeah. <laughs> no ones in particular, it's just these are, these are kinks. Oh, don't get me started on Dan Savage. <laughs> can, can we get you started on Dan Savage? I mean, it just, the, the guy has a, like, and especially considering he's, he's talking, he's coming from a place of trying to be more sexually liberating mm -hmm. and having a, a bigger presence in what one might call the queer community. I feel like he's very narrow-minded. Really? Having said all of that. Like, he's, he, got, he gets to certain things in his mind, and he's just like, he's very cut and dry on certain things. Doesn't have a lot of flexibility. At least that's what I've got when I've read his articles. I've kind of stopped reading him. But he says things sometimes that I'm just like, really? You, I feel like <laughs> you need to check your privilege, Dan Savage. Oh. Which, hmm. to be fair, and this is a bit of a controversial statement, I find I have experienced a lot of white gay men who understand that they have this one area of not being privileged, that in their sexuality, right? but don't acknowledge it in a lot of their other areas of their life, still being a white male. Ah, uh, so... Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> and that's Dan Savage's problem. Okay. <laughs> but because he thinks, and this, and this is where I see it happen, is because he goes, huh. I understand oppression because I'm oppressed in this way. Mm. They don't acknowledge the way they oppress others due to their privilege. Gotcha. And that's why Dan Savage bugs me. Badphilosophy.com. Boom. Academic.